0: And uh, we also have a group of readers who will now read for us our text for today, the words of Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And as they assemble, the children again may, may be uh, dismissed. Let's hear now the word of God. Today's text is Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8. That's on page 1912 of your Pew Bibles. Brothers and sisters, you have a role to play in this reading. In a couple of places, you'll see words on the screen. In each case, the readers will first say the line, and then you are invited to repeat it after them. Words on the screen. We read it. You repeat it. Now, hear God's word from Revelation 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Bless Bless us, us, Lord, as as we read and hear and and take take to heart heart these words. Bless us, Lord, as we read read and hear and and take take to heart heart these words. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father.
1: To To him be the glory and power power forever forever and and ever.
0: Amen. Amen. To him him be the glory and power power forever forever and 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 ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who who is, is, and who was, and who was, and who is to come, and and who who is to come. come, the Almighty. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and thank you to all of you as well, sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ. Um, about a year or so before his death in 2003, country music legend Johnny Cash. Uh, recorded a few cover songs of other artists' work. One was the song Hurt by the industrial rock band Nine Inch Nails. And the band's lead vocalist and songwriter, Trent Reznor, remembers uh, initially being rather unimpressed with the idea of Cash covering one of his songs. Uh, While he was flattered that Cash wanted to, to cover it, he felt that it sounded a little bit gimmicky. After all, they're from very different genres of music, and so he wasn't sure if it would work. But after hearing Cash's version and then seeing the accompanying music video that went along with it, he changed his mind. Reznor later said, I popped the video in and wow. Tears welling, silence, goosebumps. I wrote some words and music in my bedroom as a way of staying sane about a bleak and desperate place I was in, totally isolated and alone. And somehow that winds up reinterpreted by a music legend from a radically different era. And still retains sincerity and meaning. Different, but every bit is pure. In fact, Reznor even went so far as to say, That song isn't mine anymore. Even though he was the one who had originally wrote it and sang it, after Cash's cover, Reznor felt like that song belonged more to Cash than it did to him. Now, it was still actually the same song. Uh, The chords and lyrics were the same. There wasn't anything new or all that different about it but it felt like there was. That was the power of Cash's version. It felt different. It sounded new. Even if you had heard that song before, the way that Johnny Cash sang it made, it, made you feel like you were actually hearing that song for the first time all over again. The book of Revelation does the same thing. Uh, This may surprise some of us, but in his book on Revelation, Reverse Thunder, uh, Eugene Peterson argues that Revelation doesn't really contribute or add anything all that new to our understanding of the gospel. By the time we get to this book, here at the end of scripture, he says, we already know pretty much everything that we need to know as Christians. He writes, everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject. In other words, what Peterson is saying is that if you've read the previous 65 books of the Bible, uh, Genesis through Jude, then you've already actually got everything that you need to know as a Christian about God and Jesus and the gospel message by the time you finally get here to Revelation, the last book. You've already got everything that you need to know to be saved. You've already got everything you need in order to have a relationship with God. There's nothing new in the Revelation that ultimately adds to that. Uh, In fact, that's actually why some of the early Christians argued against even including Revelation in Scripture in the first place. Um, I was actually surprised to learn this a few years ago, but apparently Revelation almost didn't make the cut. It turns out that when the early Christians in the early church were trying to decide which books should be included in Scripture and which books should maybe be left out, Revelation was one of the most hotly debated and controversial of them. And a big part of that was because, like Peterson, a number of the early Christians simply didn't think that it really added all that much to our understanding of the gospel. It's helpful, they said. It's useful. It's good to read. But there's not... Really, anything new here, at least nothing that we haven't heard before. So, do we really need to include it? Peterson would say yes, and so would I, by the way. You see, while Revelation doesn't necessarily reveal anything new or different from the previous 65 books of the Bible, it does present it in a new way. Kind of like Johnny Cash singing an old song in a new way, Revelation feels different from what we've read before it sounds different it takes the same gospel good good news that we are used to hearing throughout all the rest of scripture and it makes us feel as if we're hearing it for the first time again as peterson says revelation doesn't necessarily add anything new but it does say it in a new way that's why this book is valuable Peterson writes, I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. That's what this book does. The book of Revelation doesn't necessarily add to our understanding of Jesus, the gospel, or our faith, but it does help us think, feel, and imagine all of that in a different way in a new way. And that's why Peterson says that revelation, quite literally, is the last word in scripture. It has the final say. And how does this last word begin? With a blessing, actually. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. St. John actually opens this book with a beatitude. It's kind of similar to the beatitudes that Jesus offers in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. There, Jesus says things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so on and so forth. However, St. John here writes, Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it, and blessed are those who take to heart what is written in it. Blessed. Uh, Some commentators like to translate that word happy, as in happy are those who fill in the blank. But others point out that there's more to that word in scripture than what we typically think of when we hear the word happiness. You see, for us, happiness is an emotion. And it's a fleeting one at that. It tends to change with our circumstances. So if things are going well in my life, then I'm happy. But if they're not, then I'm not. Happiness is a fickle thing. It depends very much on the sorts of things in our lives that are less than dependable themselves. It depends on things that can quickly change. And so as a result, our happiness as human beings can quickly change too. To be blessed though, is much more firm. That's because, as one scholar puts it, to be blessed is to experience the ultimate well-being and distinctive spiritual joy of those who share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. What she's saying is that to be blessed, the way that John is using it here, means to experience the faithful goodness of God. To be blessed means to know in a real, personal sense the joy of God's grace. It means to be assured that we are, in fact, all of us, God's people. That's what it means to be blessed as Christian believers. It's not just human happiness the way that we might typically think of it. Instead, to be blessed is the deep assurance that comes only from salvation through Jesus Christ. And unlike our normal circumstances That doesn't change. Rain or shine, good times or bad, regardless of whatever may or may not be going on in our lives, God's grace and goodness to us is always available. It's always firm. It's always near. To put it another way, our blessedness as Christians is secure and certain, even when our happiness and even when our circumstances are not. And so it makes sense that St. John blesses those who read, hear, and take Scripture to heart. Because after all, where is it that we learn of God's grace and goodness to us? Where do we see his committed care and love for us revealed? Where do we find all the sure and certain promises that we hold so dear as Christians? Well, we find them here, in this book, in Scripture, in God's Word to us as his people. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. We are blessed when we do that because that is where, in scripture is where we learn of all the blessings that our God has given us in his son Jesus Christ. There's something else to notice in this verse though too. The NIV translates that last part, blessed are those who take heart in what is written in this prophecy. Take to heart what is written here. Uh, The Greek word for that phrase is tereo, and it literally means to keep. Blessed are those who keep what is written here. But it doesn't mean keep the way that we typically use that word, as in to hold on to something, to keep something for ourselves. Instead, it means to keep, as in to obey. Again, Peterson writes, The word tereo does not mean keep safe by putting Scripture in a strong box. Instead, it means to keep at it, to keep it in use, to keep it active in everyday life. The intent of Scripture is always to enlist participation, you could say, obedience, body, and soul. He goes on to quote another author. Eric Auerbach, contrasting Scripture with other ancient literature, wrote, The Scripture stories do not court our favor. They do not flatter us that they may please and enchant us. They seek to subject us. And if we refuse to be subjected, then we are rebels. In other words, Scripture is not some nice, pleasant thing, you know, that we just keep on display. It's not a decorative knick-knack that looks good on the coffee table. It's not just for special events and family get-togethers when we want an encouraging word. It might be those things sometimes. But as we'll actually see next week, in the next part of chapter 1, Scripture is also a sharp, double-edged sword, cutting us to the heart and requiring of us our obedience, requiring our allegiance, requiring even our very lives. To keep Scripture that way, to obey it, to truly take this word to heart, it demands not just to be the last word here on the page, it demands to be the last word In our very lives, too. That's ultimately what Scripture is, right? That's what Peterson means when he calls the book of Revelation, but more than that, all of Scripture, when he calls it the last word. He means that as Christians, the Bible is our ultimate authority. It's our true foundation. It has the final say on what we think, what we believe, and how we live. It's the last word. The problem, though, is that there are so many others clamoring to have that last word in our lives, too. And there are so many people, organizations, and influences, in addition to Scripture, claiming to know what we ought to believe, telling us that they know what's right for us, and trying to have that final say instead. For instance, we heard from two of them this past Tuesday night. That's what President Trump and Joe Biden each want to be, right? They want to be the last word. They want to tell us what's right. They want to convince us that they and they alone know what we need. And then they want us to believe that they can lead us there, to some imagined American promised land. And it's not just them either, you know. It's all the TV and radio pundits too, the bloggers, vloggers, and, and legion of podcast hosts. The best-selling authors and social media influencers, the college professors, tech entrepreneurs, and Hollywood entertainers, the billionaire playboys, self-help experts, and professional athletes, they all want to have the place of Scripture in our lives, in our hearts. They want to tell us what's right, what to think, and what to believe. They want to have the final say. They want to have the last word. And sometimes we let them, don't we? I don't think we intend to. Um, I don't think there's anyone here who would say we willingly allow other authorities to take the place of Scripture in our lives. It's not like we consciously choose to let someone else have the last word instead of God, the final say on what we think or how we live. And yet it happens all the same sometimes, doesn't it? Happens to me It happens to you. One way or another, we allow our perspective, including our perspective as Christians, to be shaped and formed by the myriad voices seeking to influence, affect, and sway us. I'll give you an example. Um, I know a lot of young Christians these days who don't seem to think uh, that there's really anything wrong with living together before marriage. In fact, they actually argue that it's a good thing. You, You get to sort of test drive things, they say. You know? See if you're compatible first and if you live well together before, before taking that step of committing to it. And if it seems like it's working, then you get married. Now apart from the fact that that actually misses the whole point of what marriage is, which is the commitment by the way, that's why the central part of a marriage ceremony are the vows where two people commit to each other regardless of anything else. For better or for worse, for richer or for poor, In sickness and in health, we say, the commitment is what marriage is actually all about. Regardless of the fact that it completely misses that, it's also just not a biblical way of doing things. So why do so many young Christians seem to think it's okay? Well, the short answer is, Because our culture does. You see it in movies, right? TV shows, celebrity relationships, people living together before they get married, if they ever even get married. The people creating our cultural products don't see a problem with living together before marriage. And so the things that they produce don't see a problem with it either. And slowly but surely, that trickles down. It trickles down from what we see and hear and watch What we believe, and then from what we believe to how we live, and then from how we live to what we think is normal and okay, even in the church. And once that happens, we just sort of ignore what Scripture might say to the contrary. Yeah, yeah, I know the Bible says it's not okay, it's not the way to do things, but, but, We justify doing things different than what Scripture says because we have a new last word informing our beliefs and ideas. And suddenly, it's that perspective instead of Scripture's that has the final say for us. Or how about violence? You know, as a red-blooded American, I sometimes have these fantasies of myself as an action hero. I sort of imagine somebody maybe threatening my family, for instance, and then I picture what I would do in response. And it's always the same. I envision myself like Liam Neeson. You know, tracking them down, hunting them down, confronting them, maybe even disarming them, and then issuing some sort of cool, stone-cold line like, you messed with the wrong guy. And then I exact my revenge. But I know that's not the way of Jesus. I know I'm called to be a very different kind of person, actually. Not to be Liam Neeson but to be more like Christ. I know his teaching about turning the other cheek. I know the proverb and what it says about giving your enemy food if he is hungry and water if he is thirsty. And I know Jesus' words about enemies in the Sermon on the Mount as well. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Everyone does that. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Everyone loves those who love them. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Everybody greets those who greet them. And yet I've seen enough John Wayne and Clint Eastwood on the big screen. I've read enough of the Hardy Boys. I've listened to the cultural narrative that as Americans, we don't get mad, we just get even. And to be honest, I've believed the lie that that's a more effective way of doing things than the way that Jesus teaches. One more example, personal success. You know, living in this culture, it's it's very easy to buy into the American ethic of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. The way that myth goes, all it takes to be successful is focus, dedication, and a bit of elbow grease. The only thing holding you back is you. And so if you work hard enough, put the time in and make the right choices along the way, you can be anything you want to be and more. Now despite the fact that that's not really true, we sell that myth as a carrot on the stick all our lives. You know, we start dangling it in front of our children from the first second that they can grasp it, and then we reinforce it every step of the way afterwards. Work hard in school, and you'll get the grades. Get the grades, and you'll get the scholarship. Get the scholarship, and you can go to college. If you go to college, you'll get a good job. Get a good job, and you'll make good money. Make good money, and you can get that nice house in a good part of town. And if you get that nice house in the good part of town, all your kids will turn out nice and good as well. And if you have good kids, and you know the story, It just goes on and on. And that's how we approach life. Striving, trying, working, earning. We run the rat race. You know, we spin the hamster wheel. We never take our foot off the gas. All in the pursuit of success, security, and personal merit. And if we achieve it, it's because of us. Me. I did it. And ain't no one going to take that away from me. The problem, though, is that we read that, we import that into our relationship with God as well. Well, I, I work hard. I try to be a good Christian. I do my best to be the person God calls me to be. So, of course, he loves me. How could he not? Look at how great I am. I'm doing all the things that he's asked me to do. And so, as a result, we end up viewing God the exact same way that we view everything else an achievement to be had, a reward to be won, something to be earned. And as a result, the gospel of grace instead becomes the gospel of gain, as in I gained it for myself. The point is, often without even realizing it, there are all sorts of outside perspectives and narratives that affect what we think form what we believe, and influence how we live, even as Christians. And it's those perspectives, instead of Scripture, that often end up having the last word in our lives, that have the final say. That's actually something that the Apostle Paul wrote about in one of his letters, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just for context, Timothy was a younger pastor, kind of like me, serving a church uh, in the city of Ephesus. And Paul, who had actually planted that church and had served as a mentor to Timothy, was older by this point, not unlike Peter. And he was also in prison at that point um, by the time he writes these letters for his ministry for the gospel. And so twice he writes letters to Timothy to encourage him in his ministry. And in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, he writes this. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It's almost like Paul wrote that yesterday about our culture and us today. But the point that Paul is making to Timothy is this. Look, he says, no matter the other voices, no matter what else is influencing people, no matter what else is claiming to have the last word, you stick to this one. That's what Paul is saying. You stand firm in the truth. You let Scripture be what guides you. Nothing else. And the same thing needs to be true of us as God's people today. That book, Scripture, God's Word, needs to be our ultimate authority. It needs to be the last word. It needs to have the final say for us still today. Which brings us to the Gospel. After all, what is the last word of this book? What does Scripture say? What's the overarching message? What's the main point of the Bible? Well, it's actually all over the place in Scripture. Thousands of different verses expressed in hundreds of different ways, but it's, it's actually here again in, in verse 4. John opens this book by greeting the churches he writes to with, with just two words. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. So simple, right? Just two words. But that's actually the entire message of Scripture summarized. Grace and peace, that's, that's the gospel in a nutshell, actually. You see, peace is, is, is what we strive for as human beings. Peace is, is, that's really what the focus and goal of our striving, our yearning, all our hard work and, and attempts at meaning and significance as human beings, that's, that's really what it's all about. God created us for peace and goodness in his good world. And we as human beings, even as fallen sinful ones, we have a lingering memory of that we know peace when we see it we know it when we feel it and so we yearn for it we long for it we crave to experience the peace and goodness that god created us for yet again and we try to find it in so many different areas the problem is that only god himself can give it to us he alone can give us his peace And it comes only through his grace. That's why one commentator that I read said that those two words are always in that order in Scripture. Grace and peace. Grace, then peace. Peace is only possible when grace comes first. You see, it's only when we experience the unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace of God that we can truly experience peace. It's only when we know the incredible love, forgiveness, and mercy that is available to us through Jesus Christ that we can truly rest. It's only when we know the compassion and care of our God that our hearts calm, our minds slow down, and our hearts fill again with the joy of our salvation. Grace and peace. That's the message of the gospel. That's the promise of our God, and that's the last word that we need to hear. And my friends, we need to hear it over and over and over again. I have a friend who actually tells a story about that. Uh, Like me, he's a younger pastor, and like me, he also gets feedback on his sermons sometimes. One of his regular sermon evaluators is an older woman in the congregation that he serves, and she can't actually attend worship in person anymore, hasn't been able to for a number of years, even before uh, the coronavirus. She lives in a nursing home, and because of various health difficulties, she can't come to church. But she listens to his sermons every week, and then when he goes to visit her, she, she gives him her feedback. On one occasion, she said, I think I figured it out. Figured what out? He asked. Your sermons, she said, I figured them out. They're all the same. Oh, he said, kind of surprised. Yeah, she said, they're all the same. All you do is preach the gospel. But then, before he could say anything else, she quickly added, that's okay. Is it because it turns out, that's exactly what I need to hear every week. So do we. If we are to hear this word, the gospel, as the last word, the final say in our lives, then we need to hear it over and over and over again. We need to know God's grace so well that it becomes part of us, a fire in our bones, and leads to the peace that only God can give. We need to know the story of salvation that is available to us only in Jesus Christ, that in him, God himself came to dwell among us. To go to the cross and die for us. To save us from our sins. And then to rise to new life and victory and in power. We need to know all that. And we need to know that one day he will come again to bring that work both in us as his people and in his entire creation to its completion. We need to know that because it's the good news of the gospel. And it's the good news that St. John presents for us yet again here in a new and different way in this book of Revelation. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ. Indeed it is. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you. Always. For the good news of your gospel and we thank you that you have not just told it to us one place and in one way that it's obscure and difficult to understand but instead that you have filled the pages of scripture with your gospel message that we see and hear it over and over again And even as sinful people lord it sinks in and it gives us the peace that is only possible because of your grace and we thank you for the one who made that grace possible your son jesus christ